We love film, we love television, we love the music, the shot choices, the iconic settings and the electric cast pairings. We love the Hollywood blockbusters and the underground cult classics. Grindhouse Cinema Club is a collective of creatives from various fields, all with a love for everything screen. This podcast is an opportunity to discuss what we love, what we don't love, what we've watched this week and what we're looking forward to. I'm Stephen Fraser, the creator, designer and editor of Grindhouse, and this week I'm joined by writers James Costello and Simon Price. I also spoke to singer, songwriter, broadcaster and educator Gareth John about Hamilton, which has recently graced our screens via Disney+. Plus. Huge thank you to Gareth for taking the time to talk to me about this brilliant and vital show. Today is a good day to die. Probably better introducers. Hello. Uh, <laughs> okay, so welcome to the inaugural Grindhouse Cinema Club podcast. Uh, joined by James Costello. Greetings. What's your favourite film, James? Uh, Badlands. Good today. answer. Today, and, Badlands. Uh, today, Badlands. And I'm also joined by Simon Price. Sir. What's your favourite film, Simon? There Will Be Blood. Good answers. Definitely Good answers. answers. Thank you. I thought I'd catch you off guard with those questions, <laughs> but you just whipped out an answer straight away. Well, you'd catch me more off guard if you asked for like a top 10 list, because I think I'd have an aneurysm then. Yeah. Just one would... specific film. It's more nine times out of 10, it's Badlands. But if you ask me to give you a list, I'll, I'll, yeah, my head would just explode. Yeah, top, all... top 10 would have given me a breakdown as well. Yeah, I'd go all scanners, David Cronenberg style. <laughs> I'll do that next time. So, on this podcast, generally what I'd start with is asking what we've all watched this week. Uh, but given it's the first episode and we've all been in lockdown since March? Yeah, something like that. Been, it's been, yeah, bloody hell. I think it's March. I know that Yeah, I set the Grindhouse website up on the 12th of April. which So I must have had a few weeks at least to think I need to do something to avoid losing my mind. We're just in the groove of it, I remember, because I remember when you sent me a message saying if I'd be interested, and it was, I was, yeah, how unusual. I'm fatter and greyer, but that's, yeah. I need yeah. more warming up in the morning. So I thought with cinemas being closed and we've all found new and exciting ways to watch things, I'd ask what the highlights, the best things you've seen during lockdown have been. Mm. Ooh. For me, it has to be 1917, um, mm. especially because it's an incredible movie, um, but also because of lockdown, it kind of afforded me the opportunity to watch it again uh, at a cinema um, because had it not been for lockdown, I'm pretty sure I would have missed that opportunity to see it on the big screen. So, yeah, incredibly fortunate and grateful to see it on the big screen and it's one of those that you need to see it on the big screen 
Absolutely. Um, yeah, just a, an absolute corker of the film. So, Simon, why is it that you could see it at the cinema? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for asking, Stephen. Um, no problem. It's because I'm over here in the Netherlands, and, yeah, uh, over here in Holland Town, we, um, our cinemas were opened a hell of a lot sooner than you, unfortunate buggers. So, yeah, um, had the opportunity to watch it, and, yeah, it's great. I love that film, and as you say, it has to be seen on a big screen. Not to say, if you didn't get a chance to see it at cinema, don't seek it out, but incredible experience in in a cinema yeah I, I think i think that sums it up it was an incredible experience cinematically i much preferred dunkirk i thought that was the much more cohesive and entertainment couple of hours spent in a cinema seat but just from a sort of technical standpoint to be kind of like i think in in some ways 1917 is more of a film lovers fan because if you can appreciate the technicality of it i mean it, it really is astonishing what sam mendes achieves but from just sat still, bag of popcorn, entertainment, I much preferred Dunkirk. Yeah, so yeah. I was going to ask, obviously, it was quite well publicised, 1917, that it was it was one continuous shot. Obviously, it's, it's not quite. No. There's a few Get bits together, but the effect is there. Yeah. So how much of your enjoyment, do you think, came from watching that and seeing it in action? Do you think it added to the film? Do you think it took away because that's what you were concentrating on? Yeah, I think um, because I saw it quite late, I was annoyingly finding myself looking for each cut. But I think that stopped without 10 minutes into the film, just because you're just so taken aback by how great the film is, how sort of yeah. moving the film is. And it's interesting as well, James, you bring up the Dunkirk comparison, because obviously there are obvious comparisons to make between the two films. But I think with Dunkirk, I almost felt uh, it, was, it was more of a – a heavy feeling that you have from watching Dunkirk, whereas with nineteen seventeen, yeah. it's a it's a bit more uplifting. I found myself crying a lot during nineteen seventeen, um, right. just through the sheer sort of joy, I suppose, and the relief of of the main character sort of getting out of it all. Um, whereas with Dunkirk, it just it's it's I th- I think they're equally up there, um, they're on a par with each other, but just almost sort of different different experiences that i found personally from from i think it's i think it's good that we have we have both and they probably uh it's like when the beatles and the beach boys were going at it in the 60s and trying to one-up each other i think 1917 wouldn't be what it is without dunkirk already existing yeah Uh, yeah and vice versa yeah absolutely i mean they're both both incredible i'm absolutely not slating 1917 it is a no no film Yep. Yeah. I think I agree with what you said, Simon, about you noticed it at first, but it kind of went away. Because I, I know um, there's a shot fairly early on where they're walking from the, obviously it's one shot, so I don't know why I said that, but yeah, quite early on, they're initially just walking from the trenches um, and they walk around a big pool of water. Yeah. And I think that was when I was very much going, how are they doing that? Like, how has it gone from, a tracking shot with them walking behind the camera to a, a what was obviously on a crane going over the water and then back to handheld. Yeah. So at that point, I was definitely kind of interrogating the technical side of it. Yeah. It, it is so impressive. I mean, it, you, you talk of tracking shots, and obviously the big one is, is like we mentioned beforehand, Scorsese in The Goodfellas when Ray Luetta's character is walking into the back of the restaurant. 
And you look at back behind the scenes stuff and Scorsese talks about how long that took to set up, how long it took to orchestrate all the individual parts and actually nail that shot to how he wanted it. But then that is just like a little minute long scene. And to be able to do that across a two hour movie, I mean, the technical side of it, what it must have required, it, it just staggers you really, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Is the, uh, is the DVD out at the moment for not? Yeah. 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 So, yeah. I think it's going to be one that I'm looking forward to purchasing just for the special features and the behind the scenes footage alone. Like that's going to be some really interesting stuff. Out of all the bells and whistles, it's 4K, Ultra HD, all that sort of stuff. So, yeah. It's, yeah, it's it's got all the bells and whistles on it. I wonder if they'll have, like, a um, a mode where you can watch the film and it just countdowns or counts down the uh, <laughs> the amount of cuts or the sly little cuts that are in That'd it. That would be impressive. I bet you can find that on the internet, though. Yeah, probably, probably. probably. I, was, I, was, I remember being slightly disappointed. The bit where he... I mean, spoilers, but if you haven't seen it, you should have seen it. Um, <laughs> there's a bit where he he gets knocked down the stairs. Is it by an explosion or? Yeah. Yeah, it's by an explosion. And then it goes to black. And I thought, oh, that's disappointing because that's a really easy cut. Yeah. Um, but to be fair, I think the implication is he was knocked out for a few hours. So I, yeah. I don't really want to watch that. Yeah. Um, just him perfectly stationary at the bottom of the flight of stairs. No. <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's in the director's cut just add an extra two hours on to the film <laughs> yeah um so james what's the best thing you've watched during lockdown uh oh goodness um a lot um what would be the best i'll say i mean, trying to steer away me 1917 is fantastic i watched the phantom fred for the first time which was amazing pt anderson uh but maybe something that people haven't heard of as much that blew me away was uh, Thunder Road, which was the um, directorial debut written by and starring um, the Aussie comic Jim Cummings. And it was it's just a tour de force of a performance. It really does take your breath away. Um, yeah, it absolutely blew my socks off uh, on Netflix. It's an absolute Is he Australian? Bangle. I had no idea. I thought he was American. No, no, he's, he's an he's a Australian comic. Stand-up comedy, which I found out recently. Brilliant. And I think that's just testament to how great he is in that film because like, he plays an American, and I just assumed yeah. that he was American. I haven't seen it, so I'm going to go and watch that after we've done it's this good. recording. It's, very it's absolute, It's Yeah, it's just brilliant what he does. I mean, some of the scenes in it, and it, yeah, it really, really did blew me away. It was one of those sort of jaw-open moments to think that this guy is, like I said, wrote, directed, starred. It's, it's an absolute um, springboard for him, surely, because it's, yeah. There's minor faults with the film, maybe in certain degrees of the narrative. The third act kind of falls off slightly, but it's his performance that carries it all the way through, and you just, you, I don't know. I couldn't take my eyes off him. Like, whenever he was on, whenever he was on screen, which is probably 95% of the entire runtime, but... He's, it's just mesmeric. You can't you can't not watch him. He just draws you in. Yeah, I think your review on it was really good because I I am eagerly sort of anticipating what what's going to come of Jim Cummings uh, yeah. from now on, really, because uh, he certainly has has a very good future ahead of him. He's just got that face. It's, I think I mentioned it in the review, the whole sort of Jim Carrey thing, but it's just the way his face can like in a single moment it can go from like despair to happiness, to 
like a whole plethora of emotions in just one beat almost, but you don't feel like it's forced. It just feels so organic. And yeah, it really is um, definitely a watch this space moment for me. Um, yeah. So yeah, Thunder Road was brilliant. And I finally got to see The Wailing, which again is another good one. Where's that available? Uh, which one? Oh, Thunder Road's on Netflix. The Wailing is also on Netflix, actually. It's like a Korean uh ghost story type it's like three hours long it's it, 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 it like it's an epic slog but it's um yeah it's a fantastic film really absorbing really gets under your skin but yeah that's another one so yeah three very different films phantom fred thunder road the wailing there you go sounds good so so as well as uh some of the great things i've watched during lockdown one of the best things i've discovered is that uh just watch website oh and, god yeah and brilliant app which if, if anyone's not aware of it, just Google Just Watch. And um, it tells you, you just put in anything and it tells you where it's available to stream. And if it's not available to stream, where you can rent it, how much it costs. It's a great website. You can search by film or you can search by director, actor. Oh, no, you could do by director. Yeah. Really useful little thing. I, I, think, I think it's no exaggeration to say, since you've told me about it, I've definitely used it at least once a day. Yeah. Oh, it's fantastic. Like whenever a, one of you guys sends me a review of something you've watched, if it's not mentioned where it is, I'll just go on there and see if I can go and watch it for free myself. Yeah, no, it's a brilliant website. So uh, on a completely different, I've watched a lot of, um, I, I, we subscribe between the two of us, me and my fiance, we subscribe to far more subscription sites than we should. We've got Netflix prime. Disney plus is the new edition. Um, now TV. And once lockdown occurred, I signed up for a BFI player subscription. Yeah, brilliant. I absolutely love. It's the more artistic side of films, I would say. Yes. It's got a good blend of classics and kind of obscure foreign cinema, but I've definitely broadened my horizons through that, I think. The best thing I've watched... And I was discussing with my fiance whether this was during lockdown or at least it's this year. The best thing I've watched is the um, Japanese comedy series Documental. <laughs> uh, which if you've not... Well, what I would say is off the back of it, they've made an Australian version, which we did watch last week. So that's definitely during lockdown. And it's the most I've laughed in a long time. Um, if you're not aware of it, I did review it for the website. But... Um, Basically, 10 comedians are invited to a room by another comedian and they're in there for six hours and the winner is the last one to laugh. So ah. it's 10 funny people trying to be funny but not laugh themselves. And I think it's a it's a mixture of just the overall mood of how that works anyway, but also the completely different kind of sense of humor they have in Japan. Yeah. Just makes it so ridiculous but amazing Um, yeah i might watch that today actually when i get dressed after this um i'm not naked by the way (laughs) when i I actually physically put clothes on properly um i might watch that with lunch when i read your review it reminded me of that scene in lost in translation um when bill murray goes on the on on the japanese game show and it's all like mental and colorful and (laughs) you know it looks like a kaleidoscope has been sick so i don't know if there's any similarities but it it yeah, intriguing. It's similar. It's it's really weird. Uh, there's three series of the Japanese one available on Prime. I think they've filmed seven, but 
it takes a long time to subtitle them. Um, but then they've also done, there's a Mexican version, which we started watching and I didn't find as funny, but I'll probably go back to it. And they've just put out an Australian version, which is hosted by Rebel Wilson. Yeah. Um, I wasn't aware of any of the comedians that were featured on it, but some of them are absolutely hilarious. Um, the, the difference obviously being that with the Japanese one, you're reading the subtitles. Uh, but it doesn't really take away from it. Sometimes it actually adds to the humor, I think. Mm, yeah. um, and just seeing some of them just – because they introduce – quite early on, they introduce a rule of no smiling either. <laughs> because, because they're just kind of keeping their laughs back by smiling, which makes it so hard. Um, but just the faces on some of them, when someone does something clearly funny and they just have to kind of acknowledge it by just pointing and saying – that's really funny. Uh, it's just such a bizarre atmosphere, but I absolutely love it. I'm definitely going to watch this. I'm going to watch this afterwards. It's interesting what you say about subtitles, though. I think we're lucky as probably film fans beyond your average film fan that a subtitle film to me isn't really any difference to a normal film. But no. what I get quite a lot when I suggest films is, oh, no, I'm not in the mood for subtitles. When to me, that sentence is like saying, oh, I'm not in the mood for uh, food. Which is yeah. it, it does it does I don't see, I don't really don't see any difference. Obviously, that's because of the amount of films that we watch. But I think that's an interesting point to make. I suppose the only drawback for subtitle films is if you're eating at the same time, but then just just don't eat during the film. <laughs> don't do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we did go to watch. Uh, we went to watch Parasite at oh. the Every, we went to the Everyman in Birmingham, which was nice. Uh, obviously, it's it's a nicer cinema than most. It's got sofas and snacks and things. Everywhere, um, brilliant. But because we were fairly close to the screen and it was subtitled, I did I found myself looking directly forward for the subtitles and then up for the actual film quite a lot. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, so I think, what a film! Oh, incredible, incredible. And actually, I mean, that's not during lockdown, but it's it's obviously one of the best things I've seen this year. Uh, yeah, well, for me, absolutely, and 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 again, that director as well. Um, I'm really bad at uh, names, and I forgot his name, but he. You look at some of his stuff, and it's amazing because Parasite is actually only my second favorite film of his that he's done, and that says a lot about how good he is, and also how good Parasite is. I think. Yeah, well, he did Snowpiercer as well, which I'm not sure if it's a brilliant film, but for some reason. Uh... Me and my other half really like it. So we watched that again this uh, this lockdown. Yeah, I haven't seen Snowpiercer. I keep getting told to. The film I like, the film I actually would put above Parasite um, is a film called Mother. Yeah. Uh, which is absolutely brilliant. Just about a woman who, um, a mother, incidentally, who has um, a mentally challenged, is that the um, correct terminology, um, child who's accused of murder and we as the viewer, no spoilers by the way, we as the viewer know that he hasn't done what he's been accused of but he's um, he doesn't have the faculties to defend himself so this sort of unassuming village mother takes it upon herself um, and I'll leave it at that but it is yeah, mm. fans of Parasite, it's one of his earlier works but it is yeah. mind-blowingly good I definitely need to jump on the hype train when it comes to Parasite and this because there's a lot of noise obviously being made about those films and um, yeah, just I mean, there's tons of films that I haven't seen, which isn't great being a writer for this uh, <laughs> grindhouse. But yeah. I think I think we're all in that position. To yeah, be honest, absolutely. I, I I haven't seen Snowpiercer. 
No, but I, I think there are. I think Parasite is definitely one of those films where there's just so much noise about that film that I almost feel guilty that I haven't seen it. I think there's quite a few sort of films I can name like that. But um, yeah, Parasite puts you off, doesn't it? In a way, sometimes. Mm. Yeah, yes. yeah, you, you can almost feel they... disappointed by watching a film sometimes. Yeah, but then you have to think, well, if, if so many people are talking about it and like mm. all the critics are raving, then there must be something going for it. Yeah. Um, sometimes you'll find that it's not very enjoyable. It's just an artistic achievement, but mostly they tend to go hand in hand, especially if, like, I'm not putting us on a pedestal by any means, but I think if you watch a lot of films, you start to just appreciate the cinematography and the, the soundtrack and the work that goes on. Absolutely. Which means that you kind of get this extra level of enjoyment. If it's not, you know, yet yeah, it might be a sad film, but you come out of it buzzing because it looked amazing or something. Yeah. yeah. Oh, there's there's, um, there's plenty of films like that though. It's like, um, and it's the same with music and books. Like, there's many bands that I don't like, for example, but I I, I can appreciate what they've done. Yeah, and I think I, I I get that a lot because one of my favorite bands is Radiohead. Yeah, and. The amount of people that are just like, oh, music to slit your wrist to kind oh, of thing. Yeah, yeah. No, it's not. I, I, I know exactly which songs they're talking about, and I will defend to the to the death those songs. They're beautiful. Yeah. And and I by no means come out of it feeling like that. I think I think you're missing the point. If, yeah. <laughs> if I think the like Smiths that. get the same sort of label as well. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. That could be their epitaph almost. I think you missed the point. Kind of following on from that theme, the other the other film that I absolutely love that I hadn't seen that I watched during lockdown because you reviewed it, Simon, for Grindhouse was mid nineties. Is <laughs> the correct noise? Yeah. So I don't know. Do do you want to kind of introduce the idea of mid nineties, Simon? Because you you did the review. Um. Yeah. I, I, I guess it's a film that uh, it's one of those where had you sort of told me that Jonah Hill was making a film, I think my first reaction would be that it's just going to be another sort of um, uh, Judd Apatow kind of vehicle, almost like typical sort of middle of the road comedy kind of thing. And uh, mm. and it wasn't really something that sort of caught my attention until I saw the trailer and thought, oh my God, this looks incredible. Because just sort of watching the film and just noticing how much care and attention had gone into it from from Jonah Hill's perspective and you could see how personal this film was to him and I think one of the exciting things for me was noticing how much I had in common with Hill himself he um I think he was born in 83 or 84 which I was born in 84 as well and you can see that he'd obviously grown up in the oh. 90s as I had and he was a huge fan of hip-hop fan of skateboarding as I was um so yeah there was a lot of those sort of comparisons there that were just it was just great to see and then on top of that you had this amazing actor in Sonny Silchik who just at the age of 11 just carries the film incredibly well and then the sort of directorial um, touches on top of that the the soundtrack is just what a soundtrack I, for me that's got to be one of the greatest soundtracks of a film um, obviously, there are sort of films out there where you can say uh, the score is is incredible, but in terms of just a pure 
pure soundtrack alone, I think that's got to be it's got to be up there for me. Yeah, one hundred percent. I knew that it would be uh, one of the obviously the beginning of the film kind of starts with laying the foundations of the main character Stevie's relationship with his brother, yeah. Ian, and he's kind of Ian goes out the house says don't go in my room. So the first thing he does is go in his room, which obviously the he's so familiar with it he does it every day when Ian goes out yeah or it's the weekend but you you get these shots of the room the establishing shots of the room the kind of the magazines are right but it, it pans across his cd collection yeah yeah and you kind of you already know <laughs> okay i'm gonna enjoy what i hear in this film because it's a very similar cd collection to my cd collection yeah, <laughs> yeah. i, I yeah. found that it's quite eerie actually because i i have a brother that's almost six years older than me and i, I did exactly the same thing so it's like there's so many parallels that i could find to to sunny to myself and even as, as well as like what's in there it, it kind of lays the foundations for ian being this kind of ocd character where his he's got all his hats like perfectly lined up he's got his his trainers there with a the little toothbrush next to it so you clean that with a toothbrush it's great but then the, the cds are in alphabetical order which I do. I still do. Uh, <laughs> it just makes sense if you've got lots of CDs. I don't care. <laughs> but because of that, they're like they're even they're the same CDs. They're in the same order that I had them. So it's just this eerie familiarity. Yeah, it's an, an astonishing soundtrack. Though. I mean, I, I remember pausing that scene when I watched Midnight, as I think for the fifth time or whatever, and going along. They the said like, "Yeah, got that." got that, got that, had that, got that, got that, got that. And it's every single CD on that shelf is just the epitome of like 90s hip hop and 90s cool. You've got like 36 chambers. It takes a nation of millions. It's it's just gold after gold after gold. It's, it's um, yeah, it's superb. There's the three songs on, in the film as well that really help to sort of bring it away from it just being a sort of 90s film and just having a, almost a sort of gimmicky feel to it where it was all just in the 90s. And that the three songs were one by the Mamas and Pappas, um, another by Herbie Hancock, and yeah. another by Morrissey. And it was just it was just like really, really great choices for those songs to just sort of, like I say, sort of take you out of it feeling just like a pure 90s film. The Mama yeah. and Papa's one was uh, dedicated to the one I love, isn't it? I yeah, think. it's. A, I think and the first time we see them skating down the uh, the motorway. Yeah, it is. It's, it's, it's such a good choice, and it's like you said. You know, they've got those little Herbie Hancock and Mamas and Papa's, and then they've also got like early sort of DC um, punk movement stuff with stuff like Bad Brains and the Misfits. It's Misfits, just, yeah, definitely. It's just superb. Um, it really, I can't praise the soundtrack enough. Then the other, the other bold choice with it is the the score by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. Yeah, who, who everything they, it seems like a, a collaboration that's sticking together, but it, it's working well. So why not? Yeah. Um, it's not they they could have gone the easy route and gone kind of grimy hip hop style, like to fit with the the music use, but it's not that. It's this kind of dreamy synth based um completely jarring but really works for the film um the the standout for me is the the shot where they're skating in the park and the cops come <laughs> and, then, and then all the kids just sprint away yeah uh, it's a beautiful scene because you get the shot of um 
Stevie kind of hiding behind a dumpster while everyone's running past in the background, and he's he's got this kind of look of elation on his face. Yeah, this it's this dreamy synth soundtrack in the background, which it's just makes it an incredible scene. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm laughing because that scene with the cop is 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 the funniest line in the film for me as well. <laughs> which is why I was giggling over that when they're having the back and forth between the security guard on the other side of the fence. And I think he responds to, I forget the actor's name, but he's, he's fuck shit in the movie, the dude with the long curly hair. Yeah. And he just comes back with something like, he, I think he calls him a Cheryl Crow looking motherfucker. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely slays me. It's, it's a line of the film and just the back yeah. and forth. You can tell a little bit was ad-libbed. It was a bit scripted as well. Oh, it's it great. It absolutely had me straight away. And it's, again, it's just such a flashback. So I remember jumping into, jumping over the gates and going into schools to play basketball and to skate and stuff like that. And then a caretaker would come and chase us across the school fields and would jump over a fence. It was just, it was, it just nailed the aesthetic so well. And it was just, for me, like you, Simon, as well, and Stephen, it was just a blast of nostalgia. It was like a window into how I used to live. It was just wonderful. Absolutely. So I, I bought the Blu-ray of this film the other day because it was two pounds, and I wow. thought one. So I watched the uh, commentary, and they were saying oh, that cop was played by I don't know who it is, but he's played by a stand-up comedian, um, or a comedian anyway. Right. He might have stand up, but I think that shot was about ten times as long. They had to cut it down, <laughs> but they were just riffing off each other. <laughs> Just that line, it killed me. Every time, I think, every time I think about it, I'm just walking down the street and I think about it, I get a little giggle and then I get weird. Look, I was that dickhead laughing walking down the street. But It's important that you mention the sort of ad-libbing in it as well because I think that's something that comes through in the film so much is how almost like Larry Clark and Harmony Kareen and, and the film Kids, obviously. I know we talked about it before, James, but that kids the sort of obvious comparison that you can make to the film but it's there's just a almost documentarian style to the film where it does feel it feels natural it feels like we're watching we're watching them we're not watching character or we're not watching actors we're just watching people just like we're watching a home movie yeah 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 well they were saying about the uh there's a shot fairly when he when he first meets the other kids really and he's he's out there skating he's not skating yet um it's really kind of overly lit in the LA sun. And they were saying most most directors kind of tone that down or make it look kind of beautiful, like backlight the characters. Yeah. They, they wanted to hit hard with the LA sun is unbearable. Like it's just, it just burns your skin, yeah. washes everything out. And that really, really comes across in the film. I think, yeah, I think the use of natural light, like the whole film is amazing. I mean, I watched a little thing with the three of them doing an interview with someone, I forget who it was, and they were saying some of the best times when they were up to like three, four in the morning and they were just sort of skating in the sunlight and they're just using the natural light of LA and the natural smog and sort of haze to sort of, and it almost like engulfed the characters in a way. Um, it's brilliant. I think a lot of what you said about the, the almost documentarian look is down to the aspect ratio and the, you know, and the way it's filmed. Yeah. It's kind of revo- not revolutionary. That's the wrong word. But again, Jonah Hill had to fight to get that four-three ratio in. Yeah, they were like, well, no one films films like that. Those sort of films don't make money. Yeah. Like I think the only hundred mil film gross is Grand Budapest Hotel that only used that aspect ratio for a little bit of the film. But yeah, this the entire film in you know sixteen millimeter four-three Academy format, and it's just all the better for it. I think if this was shot digitally. 
it just it will just lose it. It's like the old crackle on vinyl. It's what makes it special. Definitely, yeah. It's got that grain to it as well, which really makes it gives it that nineties look. And I think also it's partly because obviously the film culminates with um, fourth grades like home movie that he's been making throughout the film. Yeah, and I think it that kind of ties in nicely. It's like this whole thing was a a nineties home movie. Mm. Yeah. I think, that as well. I, think, I think that was a brilliant sleight of hand by Jonah Hill. Like, I didn't see that ending coming. No. I, didn't, I didn't for one second. Him popping up with his camera and filming, it permeates the whole film. Mm. But not once did I think, oh, we're going to get to see all this. I never thought it was going to be a device or that it was going to be used in the way it was. But I think... It's a film perfect was, ending to that film, though, as well, wasn't it? It was just... Oh, yeah. It's unbelievable. It's so good. Like, I don't have... I, it's one of the few films, and I pride myself as, as, as a sort of film reviewer and film fan, that even the best films in the world, I thought, well, there's got to be something wrong with it. Um, but I genuinely cannot fault Mid-90s in any way. The performances, no. the direction, the soundtrack, the aesthetic, it's for me, it's perfect. For me, it'd be interesting to know as well if, um, obviously, like all three of us have something of... of I suppose, like, of interest of the film, we're, we're more or less part of the demographic of what this film is made for. You know, we all, mm. we're all grew up in the 90s, we're all hip-hop fans, skateboard fans. It'd be interesting to know of people that weren't a part of that demographic, of people, you know, outside of that demographic, that, that whether they would feel the same way in watching this film. Yeah. I mean, I think it has to appear. I, I know that um, I watched it, and then I watched it again the next day with my other half, just because I thought she, you have to see this film, and she absolutely loved it. She's uh, a little bit younger, so not quite. Wouldn't have been the perfect age in the mid nineties <clears throat> to have been part of that. Um, definitely not part of the skating hip hop thing. Uh, she absolutely loved the film. I think I think there's enough universally that people would love about it. It's, it is beautifully shot. It's funny. You, I think you can relate to the characters, whoever you are. And I think, I think, I think that's what it is. I mean, you summed it up with universally. I think that's it. It is universal. One of the many times that I watched it, I had my um, my girlfriend's sister with me, who is who is my age. She was about the age at the time to... So she did get a few of the nostalgic beats, but wasn't a skater, wasn't a hip-hop fan, like could not be more of a different person to me, which is mm-hmm. quite a benefit for the world. Um but she, um, yeah, she loved it because I think that's the and that's the key. It's universal. It, it, it's about it's about finding your place. It's about finding your tribe, as they say, yeah. and just growing up and finding where you belong, finding what your voice is, and just finding people that have just sort of got your back no matter what. And yeah. and that's what it is. It's it, it's about family in all its many different guises. When it's at home with Lucas Hedges, his big brother character, or on the streets with his skater buddies, it's. It, yeah, it's about acceptance, I think, and finding your yeah. feet. I think a huge credit has to go to Hill for that because I think the 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 sort of nineties aesthetic and the, the you know everything that we just talked about, skateboarding, hip hop, and everything. That's more or less. I just say backdrop because backdrop kind of makes it sound almost unimportant, but it's almost. I suppose it's the only word I can think of, so I will go with backdrop. But it's almost as if it's kind of a backdrop to 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 the characters, and it's more more concerned with the humanity of it all, with with yeah. the issues and with the the sort of um, uh, self harm issues that you see with the characters that you see with um, 
Stevie and his brother, the, 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 the fact that there, there is a, a fatherless figure missing in that setup, the fact that, you know, that there are issues of alcoholism, there's homelessness, there's all these sort of heavy sort of things in there that are really addressed, but then it's done so in, in such a great way that it's not done in a sort of harrowing, heavy way. It's done in a sort of lighthearted but uplifting and emotional sense as well, which is, like, for, for, I think one of the best things for me is that I, for first film for Jonah Hill to produce this on his first swing of the bat. It's I, I'm so excited to see what, what he comes up with next. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, I think um, yeah. it's important as well. What, what you mentioned in your review, Simon, you said about it doesn't, it's got all these heavy subjects, uh, but it doesn't tell you how to feel about them. It just shows you what happens, which is what happens yeah. is, is what happens in life. Yeah. And then it's up to you to form an opinion. There's no soapboxes, is there? No, and it, it, there's a lot of you know. There's this this kid who's he's 13 in the film. He's being played by an 11 year old. So, which he's so small, <laughs> it does it does affect you when he's drinking. He's there's the drug use. There's the the bit with the girl, um, and it's it's an awkward thing to watch because you're thinking, is this okay? But it's it's what happens. Yeah, of course it is. And it, but then it's not going. Oh, he did this thing. It's awful, yeah. But at the same time, it's not going. You know, go out and do this. It's a great idea. Uh, it just shows this is what kids get up to. Mm. And I think, obviously, the the end of the film or the the scene in the hospital waiting room, where the mum kind of accepts, yeah, the other boys that are in his life. I think yeah. she, she sees. Well, I thought they're all a bad influence, but actually, this is what he has. Like he's. And I think as well as you mentioned, like the missing father figure, it's it's the kind of replacement brother because obviously he he's not getting what he needs from his brother apart from sneaking into his room and yeah. getting his, his music tastes and things like that. He's not getting the support, but that's what he gets with mm. uh, Ray. Yeah. But what I like about Hill kind of included in the film is to show that, you know, um, with, what was the brother's name? Ian. Yeah, with Ian that, you know, there wasn't, a lot going on for him either. I mean, he was right. having a fucking hard time because you see that moment where, I mean, throughout the whole film, Ian is kind of the, the, the alpha figure over Stevie. But then when sort of Stevie becomes more alpha himself and he becomes more sort of integrated with the group, um, then Ian kind of, uh, there's that moment with fuck shit. I think fuck shit sort of squares up to him and then Ian's just um, like, just doesn't have it in him to to sort of fight back, and then I think from that point you sort of see that fragility to Ian, you see that um, vulnerability to that character, and I think that's really really interesting to see. And to and I think, like I say, a lot of credit goes to Hill for sort of including that in there. It's interesting what you say as well about um, backdrop and not being the right word. I, I know what you mean. It's kind of like kind of like the soundtrack, how, how the soundtrack in Baby Driver, for example, was almost a character in the film itself. It's kind mm. of like the aesthetic in mid-90s. It, it, it's more than just set decoration. It, it's almost part, it's almost a character. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to talk about Hamilton. To join me in talking about it is singer, songwriter, broadcaster, and educator Gareth John. Hello, How are you today, Gareth. Yes. Hello. Not not too bad. Not too bad. Thanks for having me. Excellent. Not a problem. Thanks for joining me. Um, 
obviously Hamilton is in the news at the moment for because it's become available, but also because it's very um, important in line with what's going on in the world. Yeah. Um, what I wanted to do is get the opinion of someone who is a musician, someone who is interested in musicals, uh, to get your opinion on what you thought of the show. Yeah, I mean, as as I said to you when we first started talking about it uh, prior to the interview, I'm I'm very much into musicals. I was involved in musicals as a as a child uh, myself, um, sort of locally. You know, I was in like, things like Oliver and and Greece and all that kind of thing. And um, what I was thinking about, sort of in the lead up today to this interview, was I, in terms of individual uh, musicals, I do either either love or loathe them though. Um, and and this one I very much loved right from right from the the word go. Like you say, it's very important topical um, sort of subject matter at the moment. But I also just like the I kind of got got away from the the politics of it, if you like, and the 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 culture of it, just because I was blown away by the music. I thought it was really really clever. Um, using those styles of hip hop, R and B, neo soul, with a live band in a musical, it's quite a revolutionary thing to do. It's it's quite a hard thing to pull off for the actors. You know, a lot of the time they're kind of semi rapping, but they're also going into singing. And there's there were some real strong singers in there, which you don't always find in musicals. You tend to find somebody's a strong actor or dancer, and the singing kind of comes bottom of the list. They're okay, but they kind of get by as a singer. And that, there was no getting by from the singers in in uh, in that musical at all from any of them. Um, and I, I thought the other thing that was nice about it from a musical point of view was. I'm getting a bit geeky now here as a, as a music uh, musician and, and teacher, but uh, there were a lot of really gorgeous harmonies in it, for example. You know, they were really cleverly thought out and arranged. Um, and uh, I thought that was something that you don't always hear in musicals as well. There's a lot of unison singing, which I find a little bit lazy on the part of musicals and sometimes works and sometimes doesn't. When it's used occasionally, it's very effective, but when it's used all the time, it can get a bit grating on the ear, to, in my opinion. And uh, there wasn't, uh, you know, there wasn't too much of that. There also wasn't the typical kind of uh, vibrato heavy West End singing. Um, that wasn't that only came in every now and then, and it was used again in the right places. I just thought the attention to detail, everything from the rotating stage, um, you know, that was used to great effect. The choreography was fantastic. They played to the strengths of the better dancers out of the cast, uh, but also incorporated the, you know, like I say, everybody had a really strong voice, and I thought it was cast really well. Um, and they also managed to tell the story whilst pulling that all that off. So it, it was remarkable. Yep. One hundred percent agree. I, I I really liked the setup. I thought it was minimalist, but it really worked for the show. Absolutely, like say, with the rotating stage, it just and it was also on cue. They'd hit their marks perfectly, so that someone had just rotate in front of them. Uh, it was so well done. But then I guess very well rehearsed. And I- oh yeah, <laughs> I mean, I mean that's I mean some some work went into that. That's for sure. And and the other thing I liked about it was. It was a it was a non-stop it was non-stop music pretty much. There wasn't an awful lot of pure acting, you know, where they're just acting, they're not singing or or doing anything to music. Um, but I thought that worked really well. And the the fact that they pulled they pulled off being able to tell the story whilst it being music all the way through, which again can get a little bit much. And I remember when it started, I said to I said to my wife, we were watching it, and I said, Oh, not sure, not sure about this. I'm talking like first 30 seconds. Then after that, I thought, actually, this is absolutely brilliant. Yeah, it's interesting what you say about the um, the strength of the singers because I think I think part of the reason um, a lot of musicals have a lot of unison singing is is to kind of cover up the weaker voices. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's made so that you can you can have a chorus of like you say 
maybe dancers mm. who are predominantly dancers, not so strong in the singing, and they they can just hide away. Mm. But with this, uh, I, I was watching it from a personal point of view. Obviously, I'm a I'm a drummer. Yeah, um, I've drummed in lots of stage shows of various oh, sizes. Played, played in the pit and stuff. Yeah, I've played in the pit. Um, and uh, yeah, I've, I've I've enjoyed some and I've enjoyed some less. But I I watched the whole thing thinking this is my perfect show to play in because oh, of the yeah, it'd be a dream, wouldn't it? fantastic but it's not the kind of show i can see uh being successfully done by like a, a smaller dramatic group because it needs such strong voices yeah it does around all of those main roles it does but also mm. i mean strong voices but they you know that by no means were they weak dancers or actors either you know they were really right. strong all round i thought actually um the guy who wrote it uh the miranda manuel isn't it um, he, he was, I mean, when I, I kind of Googled, you know, the, the name of the, the musical and just to see who'd written it and stuff. And he'd, he'd written into the Heights as well. I don't know if you, if you saw that when it was out. I haven't seen that. No. Oh, that's definitely worth checking out. I'm sure it's available on, on YouTube or somewhere. Um, and me and me and my wife actually went to see that in London. Um, so my, my cousin runs, um, BAPA in, uh, Atlanta, Georgia in the States. So it's the British Academy of Performing Arts. So she she's mad into musicals and she's directed hundreds and and stuff and and uh, she actually messaged me on Facebook saying this show's on at King's Cross Theatre and she knew we were in London that weekend and she said you've got to go and see it and um, and it was written by the same uh, by the same writer and I thought actually that makes sense because it was that kind of again like you said minimalist performance style um, and uh, in terms of the set and stuff they, it didn't look particularly flashy or whatever and that that just that just showed off uh, their talent even more throughout really. I don't think it would have had the same impact had it been like, uh, you know, all, all singing or dancing, excuse the the pun, but, <laughs> yeah. you know, for, but in terms, in terms of the set and the, the costumes and stuff, I thought they kept that like quite minimalist, like you say. So then the, the uh, story and the message and the vocal delivery could have a lot more impact. Definitely. Yeah. Even, even the way the, the, like the main characters costumes all looked, beautiful yeah and then the backing like dancers back in chorus were just in in kind of toned down white and black that's right the show i thought it worked so well yeah <clears throat> yeah and, and also the the juxtaposition of uh of them rapping in a kind of style i've, I've been doing a lot of hip-hop recording at the moment for uh for a producer for um for something quite quite big potentially actually and um so I've had my head in that genre of music and it's a little soft spot of mine. I've always, although I'd sing jazz and, um, you know, pop and soul and that kind of thing, I've always sort of had a, a bit of a um, love of secret love affair with hip hop, old, old school hip hop in particular. And, um, and then watching Hamilton, there were a lot of the same musical feels from the band, that neo-soul halftime kind of feel, the, the jazz fusion kind of feel. But then also some moments where they went very typical West End and they did like a big, meaningful ballad. Um, I thought that um, Alexander Hamilton's wife, um, she had a real stunning voice in a musical theatre sense. She was very much, I said to the wife, she was a very much a pure musical theatre singer and it was important that she was involved. So then it has that credibility vocally as a musical. Um, but, yes. but then all the, you know, the juxtaposition of the, of the, um, uh, the outfits of the period, but then they're rapping and they're talking in uh, accessible, understandable language for the audience. Um, I thought was really, really clever. Yeah. And obviously I guess, I guess part of the reason that it is done in this style with this style of music and the accessibility is because it's a message he wants to get across to 
a, a younger audience, I guess, or maybe a, a less mainstream musical audience. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think it's. Um, it, I mean, it was a story that um, I didn't really know an awful lot about myself, and and I, and I think um, he was definitely trying to uh, trying to get that across, and he got it across with humour as well. It wasn't all just kind of um, dark, and because it is quite a, a, a dark story in places, and those moments were portrayed very well. But then you also had the uh, the uh, King George character was um, you know really kind a bit kind of. Um, uh, Monty Python type type character, you know, and um, yeah, a bit, bit kind of slapstick. yeah, yeah, quite slapstick, and, and but that was good. That was again a good a sort of relief whenever he came on, just just from the uh, sort of the different shades of of dark and light. I thought worked really well. Yeah, and it's another side to Jonathan Groff who play, he plays King George. He does, I, yeah, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Mind Hunter. <laughs> oh, that's where he's yeah. from. Yes, of course. Yeah, I was trying to. I'd recognise the name. And I didn't get round to uh, to googling because normally I'm straight on it, googling who the actor is and looking what they've done, and on IMDb and all these sites, you know. And um, and I, I I thought, where do I know that name from? Well, I'll have a look later, and I never did. But uh, yeah, you've you've uh, kind of brought that home for me. Yeah, it's just it's bizarre because he is such a contrast to that. But um, I'm reliably informed by my other half that he was originally in Glee. So right, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Made- yeah. yeah yeah i mean he um he did a great job in terms of um singing actually again a quite a, a traditional west end voice which again i thought was important they had just enough of that for me like from from a singing point of view my, my vocal coach said to me when i was training he said uh, i'd be singing something and because i'd sort of come from a musical background i guess and i love musicals i'd be singing swing music and then he'd go no that's too west end do it again yeah and um so I've always been wary not to go to, in inverted commas, go to West End. But there are strengths to it, um, and there are songs where it sounds absolutely great. And there's some classic West End songs that I absolutely love. Um, so it was uh, it was good to see a little bit of that in there. But that, it was like a dream for me, really, with the old school hip hop, and then you know that little bit of Broadway type uh, type vibe as well. I thought it was it was fantastic. Yeah, and I think including that side of it as well, it, it it's a bit more inclusive of your regular. Uh, like West End goer, absolutely, yeah, yeah. That's where it could work if they got the right cast and they were to put it on in in London or a tour. You know, a tour of it would be fantastic. Yeah, um, I think the casting must be so difficult because one of the things I kept thinking throughout was how convincing they all were. Like at no point was it cringeworthy that they were doing these. Like there's there's a couple of scenes where it's essentially like a rap battle. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah where they take yeah. where they take a verse each kind of thing, and then and they, I especially liked when they were in the circle in the um in the kind of what they were trying to represent a kind of parliament or a court, I guess, and yeah. uh, and each of them would get up and then it and it was quite reminiscent of Prime Minister's questions as we know it really, you know that kind of equivalent, um, but they were doing it in in a, a rap battle kind of format with some modern kind of idiosyncrasies in there, which I thought was really clever. Yeah, definitely. I, I um. To be honest, I went in completely like vanilla, mm. knew nothing about it. Um, no, ne- neither did I. No, no, no. I just, I just I tend to do it that way with most things. I find that I enjoy films more if I do that. Yeah. Um, but I, I thought that um, Davy Diggs, who played Lafayette and Jefferson, yes, I thought was absolutely incredible. Yeah, it was. It was, and uh, again, a, a voice on him that I didn't really know about. If I'm honest, I, you know, I didn't, I don't, well, not didn't know about, but didn't really as- associate with him. But he had some moments where I thought, yeah, fair play, you really, you really nailing that, um, really nailing that song. And he had the kind of the swagger and the charisma as well. It was, it was really Absolutely. well. Done. He's got a real presence, isn't he? Yeah, 
I don't know what you uh, thought about it, but I personally, I thought uh, Lin Manuel Miranda playing Hamilton was one of the like the weaker voices. I, I was going to say that, Bertie. Yeah, now, now, he created the show, so obviously he's kind of earned his place. And it, it's it's a good performance. I just thought compared to some of the other voices around him. Yeah, I mean, it was it was funny quite early on. Um, I think his his kind of rapping delivery is quite unique and quite cool. Um, but when he goes into kind of full on singing, um, that's when he is. Yeah, he is one of the weaker voices, and he and he's not. The other thing I said to um, said to wife because my, I'm I'm basically singing's my strength. I can act as well as the average next guy, but I'm not a dancer by any stretch. And uh, so when whenever I see successful performers who are uh, putting across a really lively performance, but not necessarily moving a lot, it's quite inspiring to me because I think you know, yeah. give it, I've got a chance. And um, I, I was kind of what we were watching it, and he did a few little clever movements, and he was bang on in time, but he wasn't exactly Fred Astaire. And um, you know, and I said to I said to the wife, I said, "Oh, he's not really much of a mover, is he?" And that early on, I thought that straight away, not one of the weaker voices and not really a dancer but the fact that he created it and I thought also without his um, acting delivery it wouldn't have been the same either even if he'd created it and somebody else had played that role I thought all the kind of emotional scenes um, you know um, and when he comes back sort of as in ghost form if you like after his death and all that he, he really kind of um, nailed those as an actor yeah they definitely and I think I hadn't really thought about it but you're right he's, he's very economical with his movement yeah, um, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that's the best way to be, you know, know, know your limitations. <laughs> I know I do. Yeah. <laughs> but I think the character worked well because it, it's not jarring that he's kind of stood there in the middle of this show with everyone dancing around him. That's what you expect from, I think, because of the kind of political topic. Absolutely. And the character he was playing as well is um, it was kind of like because he was the main focus of the show and how um, how high up he kind of uh, got in government and the, the positions he was in. You wouldn't expect him to be all, all singing or dancing. Um, no. I thought the um, but I th- and I thought some of the other guys made up for that as well. They might not have had the, the big emotional scenes to do, but, they, you know, the, the opener of the second half um can't remember the name of the song now but that was a real kind of west end belter you know and um add a little bit of a swing to it as well and it, there was some more more generally accessible genres in there which i liked it wasn't all uh, in that kind of rap format it wasn't just a two-hour long rap battle you know there was yeah. uh, some real tender moments in there and some fun in there as well some really hilarious bits as well yeah definitely and it's it's interesting saying that because um it does hit those kind of musical notes so again pardon the but like starting the second half with what's essentially like an overture yeah you need that you need to get them back after the interval get them straight back into it a kind of recap of the first half and here's what's to come um yeah i mean if you're in the writers if you're in the writer's head it's almost like he's gone okay i'm going to uh, i'm going to stick to the um the the formulaic way of writing a musical but i'm not at all at the same time you know, it, so things like that, like you say, oh, that's a good point, actually. I didn't think of that. O- an o- overture straight after the interval, getting their attention back, keeping them on side, very, very important. And you can look at hundreds upon hundreds of musicals that do that. So he he kind of respected the um, art form, um, yeah. but also just completely turned it on its head at the same time, and it works. Definitely. I think, um, well, it'd be interesting to know what you think. Do, do you think this, there's this, there's been this, there's been um, the Book of Mormon. Oh, that was um, fantastic as well. I went to see that in um, in Birmingham. Yeah, brilliant. We went we went last year to um, 
to London to watch it because at that point that's the only place we could see it. Yeah, um, we absolutely loved that. But do you think there's a kind a shift of more styles being generally accepted in musicals? I, I hope so. I hope so. I, th- I think um, I think it opens up uh, opportunities to to uh, to singers who are not necessarily uh, all round performers. You know, they're not kind of because um, if you look if you look at today's kind of performance world i was talking about this with a friend of mine a few weeks back is the the days of the all-round entertainer so it the ones that spring to mind to me are obviously bruce forsyth uh gene kelly um sammy davis jr they're three that kind of i, I draw from um they're they're kind of gone really then there's not really i guess you could maybe say somebody like bradley walsh might you know fit into that but that that's not really um something that people go after and try and become good at now like right i'm going to be an all-round entertainer i can do a bit of everything and i think if you if you go down the road of allowing more styles into musicals and incorporating more comedy incorporating other art forms whether it's spoken word or rap i think that opens up a uh, more of an audience who are not just going to want to see the same same old musicals done the same way and B opens up more opportunities for other performers who might have a following that they can bring into the musical world which is going to be better for the you know the economy of theatres and uh, audience numbers and more people getting the chance to see it as well um, so so I think it I, I hope so is the answer I'm not 100% convinced it, it will because like anything uh, nostalgia is big business I always say that and um, and I kind of live by it a little bit myself you know doing swing music it's you know it's it's pretty nostalgic and a lot of styles are um, but I hope I hope so I hope so no I agree I think I think things like uh, postmodern jukebox obviously yeah, pretty yeah, yeah. Yeah. massive audience for the nostalgic side of things um, albeit with a kind of modern pop twist yeah again they've they've they've, um sort of stuck to the rules of okay what makes good swing music and again vocals outstanding and they've really cleverly picked who they work with singer wise um but then they've 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 made it accessible by turning it on its head with the modern pop angle so there is there is there's always room for compromise i think in fact just before i came on to the uh you know to talk to you um me and my wife were talking about the um i said to her oh, it's, it, i said it's strange isn't it i'm doing a podcast about a musical i've never never done that never thought i would yes. and and she said well it, you know you've never been you've never been kind of um closed-minded to doing new things you're not you, the phrase she used was she says you're not a purist you know and i said oh no, no i'm not at all and I think that there's a lot of it and us as artists need to get over it is there's a lot of this kind of, no, 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 I won't do that because it's outside my comfort zone and it's not, you know, it's not traditional enough. It's not true enough or whatever. And, but I mean, the, you know, Hamilton has proved and Postmon Jukebox is a great music example that there is a middle ground where you can respect the art form, but make it accessible and appealing. Oh, definitely. I think even within the music world, you've got um, hip hop artists, people like Kendrick Lamar, yeah. who will have, you will have a more traditional singer or sample mm. old soul records with great voices on, but then it works the other way as well. You'll get artists like I'm going to say Beyonce as an example that comes to mind. Mm. Where you'll get more hip hop influence in there, like alongside her great voice. Mm. Um, there's just a more kind of a, a melding of genres, which which kind of opens up the audience as a whole to new things. I think. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's funny you mentioned Kendrick Lamar because the uh, the most recent albums he's released are this hip hop project I mentioned, uh, which I've been doing today. Has been the main kind of studio job, and um, that is very much 
in that kind of mold where you're uh, you're also bringing in real instruments into into hip hop as well. There's a big trend heading in, in the hip hop world heading back that way towards jazz influences, like you say, soul, Motown influences, and whether it's sampling those records directly or just having a little flavour of them, which you can only really get through musicians' input. You know, in the studio playing real instruments, like a, you know, having a brass section on hip hop record, not just a you know, not just a groove a rhythm section groove going round and round. Um, so it's, that's definitely happening in that world. I can tell you. Yeah, no, fantastic. I love those the, the people like Thundercat. Oh, brilliant! And um, uh, Guru as well. If you look at uh, Guru with Jazzmatazz Volumes One and Two, I mean, he had you know uh, jazz trumpeter Donald Bird on there and Roy Ayers and um, all, all sorts of people that are really respected in the jazz and funk worlds. And he just made like two um, genius albums, in my opinion, for you know working with those people. Yeah, I think um, it it opens up if 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 people into those genres hear real musicians playing real instruments, it, it does that thing we all want of kids getting into playing real music. Absolutely, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. It makes it makes it cool, play. doesn't it? Makes it cool. Yeah, exactly. And if you can learn a, a Thundercat bass line off a Kendrick Lamar track, then you're playing that real instrument. You realize that there's there's more to it than just someone cutting old stuff together, which is an art form in itself, but I'm I'm I am somewhat a purist, and I I'd always rather play my own music, play my own instruments. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's um I, I always have the uh, I always have the thing that annoys me. We in the business we call it the um uh, the kind of fake the plastic brass section, and um yeah. you know, and you you hear a uh, you hear on a record it's blatantly been done been done with a terrible uh, trumpet sax or trombone sound on on the keyboard, you know, and you think. Yeah. Really, you know, and from some big artists as well, you think you're not telling me I haven't got the budget to get a couple of brass players in. Yeah. Um, you know, be chomping a bit for a, a payday to come in and play properly. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, um, so but in, in terms of, like you say, making it kind of uh, cool and accessible and inspiring for youngsters, uh, a good example of that was I did a project in um, uh, in Highfields in, in Leicester. We went into a few different primary schools over a course of about six weeks. And um, the one thing, one of the songs we performed was um, uh, Justin Bieber's uh, L- uh, Love Yourself, uh, written, written by Ed Sheeran, obviously. And there were two things that were really beneficial about performing that. One was it inspired, because, you know, with brass, it's always kind of not the last thing that that, um, that youngsters want to do, but that they're, they're quite um, intrigued with it at first. But they, it, when you see it, sort of a professional playing it, it looks easier than it actually is, and I think, and it's the one they know least about. They see the least of, and when when they um, when they, I was playing the, uh, the the riff, you know, da 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 da, da on the trumpet, and the, when they saw that, and then they, their brains connected it with the record that they know and they love, and they thought, oh, actually, that's a trumpet, yeah, and I could learn that, and that's what I taught them. Um, you know, or a, ba- a basic version of, but um, that's what that, that's what I taught them. And the other thing that they learned from from that was that uh, it isn't always the singers. In fact, it's quite rarely the singers that purely write their own songs these days. They're all written by other people. And Ed Sheeran wrote that for Justin yeah. Bieber, and they didn't know that that was an option that you could be a songwriter even if you're not necessarily a singer. Not that Ed Sheeran isn't a singer; he is a great singer. But you know, you you've um, you can do that writing for the people as well. So. Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, one of my favorite artists of the last decade or so is Janelle Monet, and oh yeah, she, nice. She has a guy who has worked with her through all of her albums, who is the kind of musical go-to, and she she has a lot of creative input, obviously, and she's a 
a great performer, but this guy is kind of, I feel like he's the, the brains behind the grooves and just making it happen for her. Yeah. Yeah. You need, you need somebody like that. Yeah. So it'd be great for people like that to get a bit more of a platform, a bit more exposure. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's about trying to, we're, we're doing it a little bit in Leicester at the moment is um, trying to build infrastructure where um, song that songwriters can be part of and they can build a career with. And, you know, I'm, I'm working with a record label in town with two other writers at the minute and they're, they're different artists who, like you say, have a lot of uh, creative input, but they've also got three or four other writers and, and as they should do, they've seen it. They've seen that as a dream scenario. The fact that you can have three or four eyes and ears on your track, or they can bring tracks to you or, you know, cause they've all got kind of different strengths. Um, and that is where you get the fusing of styles because every, every musician has come from a different background. Yeah, no, fantastic. So that kind of ties into what we're talking about with Hamilton. Yeah, we went off on one there, didn't we? Yeah, yeah, that's fine. Um, Obviously, Disney have kind of, it's a bit of a masterstroke getting the rights to this on their platform. Yeah, big time. Everyone who was toying with signing up now has to see the show, so they've done that. It's also a a good political move, I think, um, to show their kind of showing support for this kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, but also it ties into what we're talking about with opening up the audience. I think so many more people will see this than would have traditionally gone to see a, a stage show of a musical in a theater, uh, which can only be good for the industry, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, um, it's, although it's quite heavy subject matter, I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't discount it as something you might watch with your, with your family. You know, um, there's uh, I'm trying to think if I heard any swearing in it. I think there probably is. Some, there is a couple, but, uh, couple of times, but there's also a couple of times that stick out to me where, uh, where they avoid swearing and they make a, they make comedy out of it. You know, they'll they'll ch- yeah. they'll turn the s word into a shh kind of thing. You know, rather than saying it. You know, um, yeah, and that definitely. kind of thing. So um, again, they cleverly sort of uh, navigated that, and um, like I say, yeah, very very good for the industry that it's going to get that massive exposure. That the, the only bigger exposure it could get is being on something like Netflix, I guess. Yeah, which which seeing how this has gone down, I, I wouldn't put it past more shows to appear on platforms like that, which would be great because something like Hamilton or Book of Mormon costs a lot to go and see, so it, it does open it up to a much bigger audience. It does, yeah. Well, you say that, but we got tickets for 15 quid in Birmingham. That's not bad at all. We went to see it, yeah. And we they weren't terrible seats. They weren't fantastic, but they were good enough, you know. Um, and, um, and, and I think... Uh, it, it's important at the minute. It's good for the industry and the fact that obviously we, you know, all of us in the arts welcome the um, the the one point five billion lifeline from the government this week. It's in terms, you know, to the arts. It's unclear how that's going to be distributed or used, um, but I'm hoping a large part of it will go to theatres because they. I mean, we've already seen in Leicester the Haymarket Theatre's gone under because it was kind of on the edge anyway, and yeah. um, you know, and I think hopefully, you know, if people are say they watch Hamilton on, on Disney plus and then they, you know, they're kind of in the mood for a musical. They might, um, they might kind of nip on, you know, on Facebook or whatever and check out what's happening at the local theater. So, um, you know, the curve, for example, have gone from strength to strength. I mean, West side story was one of their biggest, if not the, their biggest ever selling production, I think, um, you know, and, and they put on not, not just your traditional stuff, but they also put on a lot of, um, uh, 
uh, world world kind of productions. You know, we're incorporating different cultures. They're very much about the cosmopolitan nature of Leicester um, as well. So it, I wouldn't be surprised if they're commissioning more work like Hamilton, or even if Hamilton were to tour, if it were to if it were to uh, end up in Leicester. Obviously, that'd be a dream. I'd be straight there. Yeah, no, that's that'd be brilliant. Um, yeah, that's the hope, and especially at the moment, obviously places are going to attempt to reopen. Um, try and lure the audience back in. Uh, yeah, there'll be, there'll be people who are going anyway. He'll just be waiting for the go ahead, but it, it will need to open up to a, a newer audience as well. I think, uh, well, an extra audience. It it will do. Yeah, it's, it it can't rely on the same old um the same old kind of audience because the other the the good thing about musicals is they're kind of if you look at your traditional musicals, so I'm thinking like your Greases and your Olivers and your West Side Stories is that they they do run throughout the ages to a point. So they're like, everybody remembers a bit like the jungle book. Like one of my bands, we do songs from the jungle book, you know, King Brastards, we play um, King of the Swingers and Ben Necessities and stuff. And everybody wants to be a cat from the Aristocats. And you, you play in these among your original stuff. You play in these at festivals where the average age is younger than me. It's probably 21, 22. And they're absolutely, it's going down a storm. And that's probably, that's because they were brought up with it. Just like I was, just like my dad was. You know, you know, so you've got that kind of universal thing. But I think with musicals, that is fading a little bit. I don't think the new generation are necessarily getting that, um, you know, sort of the last sort of 10, 15 years. So there needs to be a bit of a, a um, kind of re- revitalization of it, I think. Yeah, no, definitely. Well, let's hope that takes fruition. Hope so. Yeah. Hope so, yeah. It was a great start, though. Uh, thoroughly enjoyed the show, and it sounds like you did as well. Absolutely, yeah. No, I absolutely loved it. I can see it being one that we watch again and again, to be honest. Perfect. Well, thanks for joining me. No worries, Steve. No, thank, thank you for having me. And good luck with everything going forward. Brilliant. Thanks a lot. Um, so you mentioned the Grand Budapest Hotel. Uh, obviously uses like three different aspect ratios for the yeah. three different eras. Um, and obviously we, we love that sort of thing. Uh, watched the lighthouse again yesterday and that's kind of square. Uh, it's black and white. It's square. It's very noticeable. But with something like the mid nineties where it's four, three and it's just a little bit of grain added because they've used the right film. I sometimes wonder how, how much the regular audience notices these kind of things or is, is it just an extra touch for kind of avid film goers is it a kind of a thing to geek out on or do you think the film is noticeably different if you take that away i think both really i think i think i think everybody notices it just the same i think me or someone who watches two films a year would notice it in exactly the same way but whereas that person may notice it and think oh that's different and then not pay another thought to it I think that's different, right? IMDb, internet, go down the rabbit hole. Wake up a week later. I think, yeah, I think with the people that that have a bit more knowledge, just I don't want to sound like I'm blowing my own trumpet or anything, or trying to come across arrogant in any way. But I think if you you do sort of are, or if you are a bit more invested in films, I think you will not just notice those things, but you'll appreciate them as well. I think that yeah. that's one um, of the key issues. I think sometimes, um, like at the beginning of Grand Budapest Hotel, there's a screen that says this film is meant to be displayed in this aspect ratio. So I think Wes Anderson 
felt that he'd put so much effort into it, he didn't want it to be missed. <laughs> yeah. Do you think that's pretentious, though? Do you think him actually telling us how to watch a film is a step too far? Or do you think it should be, like you said about Jonah Hill with Mid-90s, how he doesn't get on his soapbox, he just gives us the information and lets us process it? Do you think we should be left to do that on our own devices as a as a viewer of cinema, whether we're an avid viewer or a more relaxed viewer? Or do you think we should be told how to watch films? Or do you think that takes away from the enjoyment of just going to the cinema i think when it's a case of being told how to watch wes anderson films then i think he's well within his rights to do that i think if if it's just one particular film being told to watch in a certain way then i think that's completely fine considering there there's an absolute wealth and plethora of different films and so many films out there like just to have these different ways and these different modes of seeing them i think is 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 vital it's vitally important that we have not just everything delivered in the same way. And yeah, maybe to have that case of, of saying, look, this is how I want you to view this film. And um, I've got nothing wrong with that, in my opinion. I, think, I can sort of see I, why people might be a bit annoyed with it, but fuck them. <laughs> I think I agree. I, and I think if an artist put that much work into something they've produced, hmm. why not hope that people enjoy it in the right way? I know it's, it's the same as if a, a band has meticulously recorded something using like old analog equipment or something they'll put a note on the sleeve saying you know put some decent headphones on or yeah yeah they, often they'll be like this is best played loud or something like that yeah um and obviously the last thing you want is to hey there must be the worry these days that you're producing an album that the recording spot on you've used all these vintage mics mixed it perfectly and then it's just going to be listened to through an iPhone. Um, so you miss all of that work. Yeah. And half of the experience, to be honest, because I mean, I, I, it's still fairly recent. I got these ridiculously good headphones. I've listened to all this old, old stuff that I've been listening to for years and I still hear new details through those headphones and it does add to it for me. I mean, with, with, with uh, the Wes Anderson thing as well, I mean, I have no issue with it whatsoever. I quite like that, but I, Again, not to toot my own horn, like Simon said, but I consider myself a sort of probably above average film watcher, shall we say. But um, my question was more aimed at the average cinema viewer uh, goer. Like, do they really care? Just I'm playing devil's advocate. I mean, I do personally, but is that because I'm a bit of a film nerd? Does the average viewer that's going to the cinema and goes watching on whatever's at number one, like, do they really get aspect ratio is just as important as say a character on the screen or just as important as, as um, a, like a, a certain color that's used a lot more in the film or a certain part of the narrative. It's just as important to telling that story as any other element to the film. So I think, yeah, um, yeah I, I think, yes, yeah. I think it's very important. And also the, the screen at the beginning of the Grand Budapest Hotel is, is there for about three seconds. So if you've got a massive issue with it, yeah. What's wrong with you? Like, yeah. <laughs> <just quite. laughs> Grand Budapest is amazing. Wes Anderson's masterpiece so far, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. I think it's it's clearly the culmination of years of him mastering his craft and honing. Yeah. Uh, which me- makes me all the more excited for uh, the French Dispatch. Oh, I cannot wait for that. It's one of my most awaited. I think uh, I find it really good as well when people say who's in it and you just say everyone. Who isn't in it? Yeah, yeah, who isn't in it? I mean, it has to be, even if the film doesn't live up to the hype, which I'm sure it will, because all his films normally do. 
but it must have the the strongest cast this year in right. any film. That was definitely something that stuck out to me was the cast because there's obviously a lot of um, old faithful regulars that are returning. For yeah, a Wes Anderson film, but let me just—I'm just looking at IMDb now. So you've got Timothy Chalamet, who's never been in an Anderson film before, I think. Uh, Christoph Waltz, Benicio um, del Toro, yeah, Jeffrey Wright. Uh, oh, yeah. Jeffrey Wright in it as well. Yeah, Jeffrey oh, wow. Wright in it. Yeah, and then obviously I love you've got, Royale. Yeah, and then you've got the old, old regulars like Tilda, uh, Adrian Brody, Bill Murray, obviously Owen Wilson. Yeah, it's uh, it's Still quite incredible. Incre- oh, Elizabeth Moss as well from um, Invisible Man and Handmaid's, Handmaid's Tale. She's in it as well. So yeah, yeah. I feel like um, the Wes Anderson cast list. It's like a traveling circus. It's like he, yeah. he has his group that he's happy with, and then he'll pick pick up people on the way. And if if they fit, then they're there to stay, and they'll be in the next one. That's a really good way of putting it. I agree. Yeah, the fond yeah, is in uh, the French Dispatch, actually. Henry, Mitchell. of course, of course. Wow. Yeah, I'm, I'm so excited. That and that and Tenet for me are going to be the big ones. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. I was saying, I was saying in January how many big films were coming out then, and it seemed really odd. It's almost like they knew that cinemas wouldn't be open for half the year, so they had to get in there quick. Yeah. I wonder if they'll be um, really, really good. And also, I think we were saying just before this podcast, the good thing about the cinemas, if there were to be a silver lining for film fans of there being a lockdown, is the fact that when they reopen, certainly the ones, the cine world I know for are, are doing this, is that they're bringing back a lot of the old classics. Like they're releasing The Empire Strikes Back in a 4K cinema version, which has never been seen before. Um, Goodfellas is on the opening night at Cineworld on the 31st so it's going to be a, a really good chance for people who haven't seen some of their favourite films because they were maybe too young, I mean even I was even I'm not old enough to have seen Jedi or Empire at the cinema, yeah. so I think it's going to be a really good opportunity to see those sort of landmark films sort of as they as they should be watched. Yeah. yeah. Do you think there'll be a knock-on effect um, in terms of how lockdown has sort of affected filmmaking. So let's say next year, because of the, or maybe two years, how films are production wise, just there hasn't been a lot going on in terms of production because everybody's stuck inside their house. So do you think in the next sort of year or two, there'll be perhaps a bit of a drought when it comes to, to films? And perhaps like you were saying, James, they'll probably lean more on, on showing classics and showing um, sort of older stuff. I think, I think that's, very likely, uh, um, but but also I don't see it necessarily as a bad thing. No, no, I don't at all. Because to see films like that on a big screen is amazing. But I think it will go one or two thing ways. I think more than likely it'll be like you two have just said that there probably will be maybe a little bit of a, a drought, maybe if that's the way you want to perceive it. But with that, you'll also get the classics getting a, a, another rerun on a chance to see classics on the big screen, like Blade Runner, as well as also part of that. But I think the the downside of that is that. Uh, to fill the sort of screens and taking away the classics, some of the, shall we say, well, for want of a better term, shitter films that just kind of go straight to DVD, they may be getting a chance to shine at the cinema. So maybe the the quality may become slightly watered down as they attempt to fill the screens. Yeah. Potentially, yeah. We shall see. I'm all for more classics. I'm, I'm down with that. Yeah. Yep. 
Absolutely. Yeah, I do wonder if there'll be like a readjustment in terms of finances and things like that. That that'll be interesting if if sort of uh, compromises have to be made in the, in those regards. But yeah, it'll do. It's definitely going to be an interesting next couple of years, really, to see what happens on that front. I think for me, it's it's. Um, I'd liken it to music again. I'm 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 more likely to spend money these days on uh, like a vinyl pressing of an album I love. Yeah, and listen to new stuff on Spotify. And then when I know I like it, I might buy it. I think that could be the same for films. Like I, I'm I'm more likely to spend a tenner going to the cinema to watch one of my favourite films of all time yeah. on the big screen with the proper sound than something I'm not sure about. Yeah. yeah. Obviously, there's, a, there's a, something to be said for the cinema experience of seeing new films in that environment. Um, but it's a bit of a risk and it costs money. Uh, if you don't have a membership card, like I know you have, James, I don't know about you, Simon, no, but okay. I haven't. Uh, so it is, I have to make that choice when I'm thinking about going to the cinema. Yeah. I haven't done that for a long time because I've had one for so long. And I must just do a little shout out as well. I mean, I'm not plugging. I don't get paid at all, but obviously. Um, but how good value those cards are. I mean, I think, I think people think that they just sort of brush them aside. You know, like when you're in a shop and say, oh, have you got a loyalty card? And you just... You kind of, yeah, just hope they like trip and hurt themselves later on in the day. But when you actually lend thought to it, they're so cheap. This thing, I pay £15 a month for my Cineworld card, for example. Uh, I think a ticket is nearly a tenner uh, if you go on your own. And I pay £15, £16 a month. And I could go and see five films a day every single day of the year if I wanted. Every Tuesday they do a special screening like I saw... Green Room, I saw La La Land, all these special one-off films that aren't open to the normal cinema, only if you've got a Cineworld card. And essentially, you need to go one and a half times a month to make use of it. And yeah. I go so often. I've got a few hours in the afternoon, I'll just go and sit in the cinema. Yeah. It's such good value for money. Like It really is. People should look into them more because I think that will also up cinema attendance, which with the economy after lockdown is never going to be a bad thing, is it? We might see a discount on that kind of thing. Hope so. With them trying to fill cinemas again, get people back in. Mm. It was less than a fiver when I worked at the cinema. Three pounds sixty for an adult ticket. <laughs> Those were the days. Not oh. bad at all. Um, oh, going yeah. back to sort of Anderson, would you? Because when I watched Grand Budapest for the first time, my instant feeling was was what you guys were talking about, and I had that feeling whilst I was watching the film that yeah, this is a director absolutely completely at the top of his game and this is just just an absolute masterpiece in terms of somebody that's been working so hard at this single style of this 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 real unique style that anderson has and uh yeah i just wondered if you had the sort of same feeling that i had when i was watching it at that time that yeah this is this is just somebody completely at his peak powers i personally did and, and i know that it goes back to what we were saying earlier about directors. You know what you're getting. I, you see the cast, you see the trailer, and you're just so excited because it's more Wes Anderson, but like Wes Anderson plus. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and I, it's one of those films that I watched. I'd say the same for Fantastic Mr. Fox. I just watched the whole thing with a massive grin on my face. Mm, yeah. Because I'm just enjoying every every element of it. It's yeah. just so. And I know. I think it's. He's one of the most divisive directors, I think, because he's so prescribed and symmetrical and there's an obvious kind of over-the-top colour palette to it all. Yeah. 
and an obvious style, but I love it and okay. I don't care. Yeah. I'm, <laughs> yeah. no, I'm, I'm complete agreement. I don't. I think it's all tourism at its at its finest, really. Because my missus, for example, uh, I made her watch Moonrise Kingdom. I think her response was "nah," and then. Uh, and then I had to sort of twist her arm into watching that because she just didn't like Grand Budapest Hotel. And like that was the pivotal moment in the relationship. Like I considered leaving her. Uh, <laughs> but I persevered and, you know, shout out to her. Thankfully I did. But um, yeah, like a lot of people don't like him. And it's, it's, I just don't get how you can't. It's just, if you just sort of open yourself up to it and just let it sort of wash over you. It's just such a welcoming place to be, a Wes Anderson film. Yeah. It's just it's a happy place. Whenever I'm feeling down or just put on a Wes Anderson film, and not only is it masterfully constructed, mm. it's also just like a big, giant hug from like a fat kid. It's wonderful. In a way, I can not- sort of understand why people don't sort of get drawn to, to Anderson films as much as, say, us, uh, as we do. But I think it's perhaps to do, if you, if you just sort of, classically trained to, to classical sort of cinema if you will uh in that real traditional sense then i mean i think wes anderson's films are pretty much the complete opposite to those so i can sort of see why people would find them very jarring i i think um oh, I do. not everything needs to be gritty no and challenging and whatever it's like again it's like music you not everything needs to be you know people will go oh this album it needs an up-tempo song on it. No, it doesn't. <laughs> if yeah. it wants to be a certain thing, it's a certain thing. There's so much music to go around. This can be its own thing. And I think I saw an interview with Wes Anderson where he was saying, yes, all my films are a certain style, but if if I've got a collection of films that kind of stand together, I don't mind. He's happy with what he's making. Yeah. And obviously there's enough audience out there who also... I think if you like Wes Anderson, you love Wes Anderson. Yeah, yeah 100%. Think really Definitely. He's almost yeah. like Marmite in a way, isn't he? Like you don't really get people that are middle ground. They either just don't like him, or I I think they don't get him. Maybe yeah. But then, then you get people who will literally defend him to the death and have like, you know, um, characters tattooed on themselves, sort of adoration levels of yeah. what that yeah. But I think he's at the point where if if say I mean obviously we know it's not going to be the case. We've seen the the trailer, the cast, the poster. If the French Dispatch was a complete departure from his style, I'd probably be quite upset because mm. I'm looking forward to a new Wes Anderson film because I know I'm going to love it. Yeah, <laughs> it's like if Tarantino said he was going to do a romantic comedy, you'd be like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, actually, I I don't know. Now you've said that, it'd be really interesting to see what he did with that. And I suppose touching on that, true romance. I mean, he didn't direct it; he did write it. Is that his romantic comedy? I don't know. It is, I mean, it's definitely romantic comedy in a very different. Yeah, yeah. Richard Curtis. <laughs> it is not. No, no. I've always thought it'd be a really interesting experiment to um, if you took like six directors, that like Anders, both Andersons, Tarantino, Scorsese. You could get Hitchcock. I don't know. And the complete like, different styles. Someone, someone like from Asian cinema gave them all the same brief to make a ten-minute film on yeah. this one brief. See what they come back with. I'd love that. Be, that would be, be so yeah, good. That would be interesting. It yeah, doesn't give them all the same screenplay. The first film yeah. that comes to mind when you when you say that there's a film called Four Rooms, and it's not exactly yeah. what, you, what you described, but it's um, I think it's four directors 
uh, directing each sort of section of almost like a quarter of of the film each. Um, yeah. I think they go into different rooms, and each room is a different director. I haven't actually seen the film, so I'm not qualified to. Yeah, to no, you're, no, you're absolutely, you're absolutely film, but, right. You're, you're yeah. Okay, so we'll bring the we'll bring our first podcast to an end there. Good chat, I think. So uh thanks to James Costello. Oh well. <laughs> uh, and thanks to Simon Price. You're welcome. Next time we are gonna talk about the lighthouse, which is a review that's just gone up on the Grindhouse website. Uh if you haven't seen it and would like to before that podcast comes out, you can rent it on the Amazon Prime store thing. You could probably watch it on YouTube as well. Uh, in a paid-for way. Uh, I personally absolutely love the film, and I'm looking forward to talking about it. So if you want to watch it so you can have your own opinion, that's where you can get hold of it. It's absolutely amazing. It's so good. It's all, you can also get it on YouTube, apparently, for uh, £3.49. It's all, also available there. You might as well be yeah. talking to me, by the way, because I haven't actually seen the film yet, so I've, <laughs> I really appreciate that. I know. There you go. That's where you can watch it. So I think it's probably the same price on there. Uh, Amazon Prime. Yeah, it is. Yeah, go and get your fill of The Lighthouse. Watch it. I mention it in the review. Watch it on as big a screen as possible because it looks great, but also it's a tiny little aspect ratio. So, yeah. Nice. Don't watch it in the middle of the day. Watch it at night. Close your curtains. Make sure you're not on your phone and you haven't got friends around. Just focus. Yeah. You need to set the scene for it, I think. And it, if you do that right, it'll just... It, it's an experience. In order to sell it to my girlfriend, what sort of genre or sort of short synopsis would you give it? It's sold as a kind of psychological horror, but I wouldn't say it's scary enough to be a horror. Psychological, definitely. It's kind of a mystery. Mm. It It's not the kind of film that you get succinct answers out of. It's kind of left to you to work out what the hell happened, but I love stuff like that. Yeah, it's kind of just like two people's descent. Tell her Robert Patterson has a topless scene in it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And Willem Dafoe has a magnificent sure. beard. Yeah, I think the beard would probably swing it for more than... <laughs> I think it's essentially, it's, yeah. I'd say it is, it's two people locked in an ice, you know, locked in a lighthouse. It's two people isolated and it's just their slow descent into madness. Yeah, it's 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 a beautiful, brilliant thing. Amazing. So, watch that for next week, um, and yep. we'll see you then. Cool, cool. Bye, everyone. Ta-ra. Ta-ra. Today is a good day to die.